switch to Spectrum Mobile and get unlimited data for only $29.99 per month each when you get two or more lines. You could save hundreds on your mobile bill. Plus, there are no added taxes, hidden fees, and no contracts. Click to try the Spectrum Mobile Savings Calculator, and in three easy steps, you'll see how much you could save. Visit SpectrumMobile.com save. Offer valid for new customers on two or more unlimited lines. Spectrum Internet required. Restrictions apply. Visit SpectrumMobile.com for details. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. If you would like to turn there in your Bible, Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. It's um, a familiar story. It's about the disciples who were in the midst of a storm. Have you ever been in a storm in your lifetime? Um, have you, maybe you're in, you feel that you're in a storm right now. Well, I'm going to read this passage Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them, the disciples, straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up to the boat, to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Then verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Wow. I want to use as a, as a subject, as a title for this message this morning, I want to talk about perfect faith, perfect storm. By definition, a perfect storm is when all the elements come together and everything, the atmosphere is just prepared, literally, so that a, the storm becomes one of the most severe types of storms there is po it's possible to experience. And we, we look at this, and this is an interesting story because on the Sea of Galilee, it's absolutely true that you can be out there and it can be calm and everything looks good, and then out of nowhere, a storm brews up. It's a very common thing, even to this day. So the disciples are here in the midst of a storm in our story. But before we go to that, I want to just point out the fact that Jesus himself told us that we can have great faith. We can have faith that is capable of moving mountains is what he told us. In Mark chapter 11, 22 through 24, he said, have faith in God for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, there's a lot in that, in those three verses of scripture, but Jesus talks about believing in our heart, but he also 
addresses the need to be able to say, to speak things. And a lot of Christians, we don't understand that. We believe God. We say we have faith. We believe God. But Jesus actually defines faith having two parts. It's believing in your heart, but it's also speaking to things with your mouth. Do you see that? Okay. It's really, really important that we understand this. So when Jesus says that faith is something that we need, you know, the Bible's clear. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. In the book of James, it says, if we are double-minded and we don't have faith, we shouldn't expect that we will receive anything from the Lord. So faith is critical. It's by, it's by grace through faith that we are saved. Faith actually causes us to not only uh, believe God for greater things, to overcome obstacles, but even to fulfill our destiny and ultimately to get closer to God. So faith is not just believing, uh, giving mental assent or, or intellectually, you know, uh, coming into agreement with certain facts about God, but faith actually, the word is pistis in the Greek language, and it means to cling to, to adhere and the idea is about trusting, and there's always action to it. It's not just like, hey, I believe this with my mind. No, because in James, he says, the devils believe and tremble. You believe in God? Good, but the devils believe and tremble. That's not real faith. That's just intellectual agreement. But the faith that God talks about is a lifestyle that trusts God completely, and actually there is action there is obedience to that faith. In fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, you can actually see that the word obey and the word faith, it's the same Greek word, but it's translated those two different ways in the book of Hebrews. So real faith has obedience. There's always a sense of following God, of trusting him, and actually doing what he says that we should do. Now, Jesus said we can have great faith. We can have perfect faith is what James calls it, perfect faith. That word perfect is, is the word teleos, and the idea is mature, fully developed, faith that is functioning the way it was intended to function. And we can have that type of faith. But let's be honest, wouldn't it be nice at the very moment that you were born again, that I was born again, that we were just, you know, provided with or outfitted with this faith so that from the very moment we came to Christ, we never doubted, we never vacillated, we never ever in any way, you know, struggled believing for the promises of God or seeing miracles and breakthrough in our lives. Wouldn't that be awesome? But that's not reality. The Bible says that faith is actually a gift from God, but we only get it in a measure. Hebrew, I'm sorry, in Romans 12, 3 says, each one of us has been given a measure or a metron of faith. The Greek word metron means a determined extent, a portion measured off, a measure or a limit. So God gives each person a portion, a metron, a measure of faith, but it's up to us to develop that faith. It's up to us to grow that faith. In fact, Jesus compared his kingdom as well as faith to a mustard seed. And what did he mean by that? Well, look at Matthew 13, 31. 
He put a parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest, listen to this, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, if you go to the Middle East and you actually see a mustard seed, it looks like a speck of black pepper. It's that small. But it says that that seed, when it's fully grown, becomes a tree. And I've seen them in the Middle East. It's amazing what a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, grows into a tree. Now, Jesus continues in Matthew 17, 20 and says, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. If you have faith, notice what he says, as a mustard seed. What is he referring to? What does he mean, faith as a mustard seed? Faith like a mustard seed. Well, some people would say that he's talking about the size of our faith. In fact, some of the modern translations actually say, if you have faith, the size of a mustard seed. But that's actually not a correct translation. That's not at all a correct translation the word that is used, I don't want to get too technical, but the word that is used actually is hos in the Greek language. And it means like, the same as, even as, or in the same manner as. So he's saying that we are to have faith like a mustard seed. We're to have faith the same as, faith even as, faith in the same manner as a mustard seed. So we look at Matthew 17, 20. And the Amplified Bible, and listen to it very, very closely. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith that is living and growing, like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to yonder place, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. If you have faith like or as a mustard seed, but he specifically, it specifically states here in the Amplified, faith that is living and growing. Faith that is living and growing. So faith is developed in our lives incrementally. We go from one level of faith to the next. We just don't go ascend to the mountaintop the very moment we come to Christ. Faith is a journey. Faith is something that we must nurture we must actually water the seeds of faith in our lives so that they grow like a mustard seed. I love what it says in Romans 1 verse 17. And let me read it to you from the Amplified. It says, for in the gospel, a righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing from faith and leading to faith. So this righteousness that God ascribes to us. It's the gift of God. It's his righteousness through Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. But he actually says, this righteousness springs from faith and leads to faith. So if you have faith and you nurture your faith, you will have more faith. It's kind of like if you have money and you invest your money, you can get more money. And this is exactly what he's saying. And then he says, faith is disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more faith. Faith arouses to more faith. Wow, isn't that good? So if you have faith, and we've all been given a measure of faith. So we say, I just don't have faith. No, you're saying that God is a liar because he said if you're born again, he's given you a measure, a metron of faith. 
You have a seed, but what are you doing with that seed? Are you nurturing that seed? Are you allowing that faith to arouse you and to go from one level of faith to the next level of faith? So how do we grow in our faith? Well, the Bible's clear. The New Testament is very clear. In the book of Jude, he says that you are to pray in the spirit, building yourself up in your most holy faith. Then in Romans chapter 10, he talks about how faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So we are to pray. We're to pray in the spirit. We are to read the word and we're to believe the word and we're to apply it into our lives. And that will cause us to grow. That will cause our faith to increase in our lives. But ultimately, after all that we have done to fortify our faith, we must realize that it is God who ultimately is working in us and is responsible for causing us to grow in our faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the beginning of our faith, and he is the end of our faith. He's the one who works in us both to will and to do what is pleasing to his Father by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible teaches us that God is committed. God is, is thoroughly invested in seeing your faith grow. God's not going to leave you. You know, God loves you just the way you are. He does. But he loves you so much, he's not going to leave you the way you are. You're not going to be able to stay the way you are if you're going to have an act of faith. Because faith is going to cause you to change. Faith is going to cause you to, to be transformed and, and to become more like Jesus Christ. That's ultimately the goal of faith is to become more like Christ, to trust in him more and more, to depend on him more and more. So the Bible says that God actually brings us to a place called wit's end. Wit's end. Come on, have you ever been there? Have you ever visited there? All right, wit's end. And wit's end is a place where we're not strong enough, we're not wise enough, we're not rich enough, we don't have enough, to do what God is going to call us, has called us to do and to live the life he's destined us for. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Well, there has to be a spiritual poverty. There has to be a sense in which we realize on my own, I can't do this. Somebody says, it's difficult being a Christian. It's not difficult, guys. It's impossible being a Christian. The only way we can live this Christian life is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. It's humanly impossible. There's no way we can do what Jesus called us to do. Read the commandments. Be holy. Try that on your own. <laughs> Cast out demons. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Try that on your own. Love your enemies. Try that on your own strength. You see, without faith, and dependence and trust in God, clinging to Jesus, we're not able to do what he's called us to do. You know, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, it's one of my favorite scriptures. The Bible says, Paul is speaking about all of the hardship he went through as an apostle. And he said, you know, you've heard about how I've suffered. You heard about my difficulties. I, fought, I faced wild beasts in Ephesus. I went through all of this tribulation and this trials. And then he says this in the text I just referenced. Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we may not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Wow. We have the sentence of death in ourselves 
that we would no longer trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see, that's what it's all about. So if we're going to have this perfect faith that James speaks of in chapter one, verses two through four, where he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Woohoo! Thank you, Lord, for hell on earth. Thank you, Lord, for difficulty and hardship and trials. He says, consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. When your faith is being tested, you're going to have to press in. You're going to have to break through or you're going to break down. The choice is yours. What are you going to do in your testing? Because trials can make you bitter or trials can make you better. But the key is, do you move into a place where you lay hold of God, you get a hold of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and you press in and you press through your difficulties? That the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now listen to this, verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work. Perseverance has a work. Some of us have persevered to a certain extent, but we not allow perseverance to finish its work. Can you imagine if Elijah just prayed five times instead of seven times, what would have happened? Perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The testing of faith brings us to a place of perseverance. But we are to make sure that our perseverance actually finishes its work in order that it results in maturity and completion so that we're not lacking anything. In other words, I want you to look at it or think of it this way. Many times, maybe if in university or college, you have to write an exam. What happens if you don't pass the test? Do they just promote you? No. You got to rewrite it. Because you're going to have to pass the test. And the same is true in God's kingdom. I don't want to write that test. God, I want you to promote me. I want you to move me into my destiny. I want you to bless me, but I'm not writing that test. And God's like, you ain't going anywhere. You go around this mountain again and again and again and again until you get what I'm trying to teach you. Until you commit yourself to the test. Because the test is critical. We know that when we, when we truly pass a test, we'll have a testimony. There's no testimony without a test. You see, there's no message without a mess. There's absolutely, you know, no victory without a battle and there's no triumph without a trial. We're not going to experience anything that God wants to do in our lives if we're running from our tests. The Bible says, consider it pure joy. I hate it. I hate it. It's hell. God says, consider it pure joy. I'm working in your life. I have a problems. 
I, I, have a, I have a plan in all of this. I'm working in your life, no matter what you're going through, whether it was your own making, your own doing, or the doing of someone else, or, or it just happened and it was the enemy. It doesn't matter. That's completely irrelevant. The point is, God says, when you go through trials of many different kinds, no matter what the, the type of trial it is, whether it's a personal trial, whether, whether it's a trial at work or a trial in your family or a trial in your health or a trial in your finances or, or a trial in your psyche or whatever it may be, the Bible says consider it pure joy and let faith cause you to move into a place of perseverance. But keep persevering and don't give up. Let perseverance complete its work so that you're mature, you're complete, and you're lacking nothing. You see, God is committed to developing our faith. Guys, the goal of Christianity, the goal of Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just so one day we'll die and we won't go to that place that's hot and nasty. That's not the goal of Christianity. That's part of the benefit package. But that's not the goal. You see, if all God wanted to do was to save us from hell, to save us from destruction, then the moment we were born again, the best thing that he could have done is to kill us. Why? Because he knows we're going to mess it up. Let me get saved. Let me take you out of here because you're going to mess it up. Right? No. That's not what his goal is. We're, we've read it many, many times. We know, but the Bible says that those whom he loved, he pre, those whom he predestined, right? He, he did what? He, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Listen, guys, it isn't pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. It isn't, well, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. This is my reason for being a follower of Jesus Christ. No, Jesus was very clear that the goal of you being saved is that you will be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. So you become like Jesus. So the question is this morning is how are you more like Jesus today than you were one year ago? How are you like Jesus more today than you were five years ago? He's committed to conforming us to his image and likeness. You see, some people, they don't want to change. They're comfortable living the way they are. But the Bible's clear. God is going to cause turmoil. He's going to bring disruption. He's going to bring discomfort. And he's going to do whatever he has to do to move us into a place of greater trust and dependence and seeking of him, a place of greater surrender. Now, that's not a comfortable word. That's not a popular word. But I'm not going to stand before God on judgment day and have blood on my hands for tickling people's ears and telling them, you're all good. I'm going to preach the truth. I don't care what happens. I'm going to preach the truth, and I can tell you that God wants you to become more like Jesus. So how are you becoming more like Jesus? How are you loving your enemies more than you did before?
How are you dealing with conflict better, with greater trust? How are you changing? How are you manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in your life more than you were before? So what does God do? In order to bring us to a place where our faith grows and moves to that place of becoming perfect, fully developed, complete, mature faith is what the word means. What does he do? He throws us into a storm. If we're going to have perfect faith, we're going to have to learn how to ride some perfect storms in life. And if you've not yet had to go through some storms, trust me, you will. Every one of us. See, Paul said in Acts 16, 33, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom. Through much tribulation. There are going to be difficulties. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be struggles. The struggle's real. God's saying, but you're going to have to learn how to persevere. You're going to have to learn how to trust me more to get through this. When I look at how Jesus prepared his disciples, think about this, to take over, to literally take the reins of his ministry so that when he died, they would continue what he started and not blow it up. Come on. Jesus did not choose a Pharisee. Jesus chose a veritable motley crew. He chose people that were the least likely, the least educated, the least qualified. Not the aristocrats. But he called those who were the derelicts of society, so to speak. And Jesus said, you come and follow me and I will make you. The word make can be translated transform and it speaks of a process. Come and follow me and I'll transform you. I'll change you. I'll make you effective in fishing for others. So Jesus has this process that he takes his disciples through. It's actually a three-level process so that he brings them to a place of perfect faith. And how many know that for every new level, there's new devils? It's true. If you want to go to the next level, you can expect there's going to be a new devil at the next level. So we have to realize and recognize this. But Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and he sees some disciples. They weren't, they weren't disciples at that time. He sees Peter and John and he sees others and he says to them, come and follow me. Come and follow me. I'll make you disciples. Come into this process and follow me. And most theologians or commentators believe that for about 10 months to a year, all the disciples did was follow Jesus wherever he went. They tagged along. They shadowed him. They didn't really do anything they didn't do any ministry. They didn't preach. They didn't teach. They didn't heal anyone. They just followed Jesus and watched him. They learned through observation. They learned through seeing Jesus in action. This is what I call passive faith. And it's all about I do, you watch, we talk. I do, you watch, we talk. But after a period of, 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 of close to a year, 
Jesus now begins to send out his disciples so that they can put into practice the things that they had seen and heard from him. But Jesus is always present or close at hand. This phase is known as participatory faith. And this is you do, I watch, we talk. And the first example of this is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. You know, well, the text that we read in the beginning of the message was not the first storm that the disciples had been in. The first storm is recorded in Mark chapter 4, and it says that when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. So what was Jesus doing? <laughs> Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on the cushion. No worries, mate. All good. And what happens is the disciples wake him up shouting is what it says. The disciples wake him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, silence, be still. Some translations say, peace, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then guess what Jesus did? Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and said, what's your problem? What's wrong with y'all? Like, what did he say? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You ever hear somebody say, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. Well, maybe your trial is different than my trial. But we all go through trials. We all go through different things in life. And the fact is, the Bible is clear. We're to trust God. We're to trust God. And I'm not saying that it's easy to move from a place where you're just a new Christian, where maybe you have to lay down your life for Jesus like some of our brothers and sisters are doing around the world. I'm not saying that's an easy thing. But the point is, God prepares us. And the way he prepares us best is by bringing us into a storm. The disciples are absolutely terrified at this point. Who is this man? They ask each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Do you see... That when the disciples cried out to God, it was out of fear. It was panic. It was desperation. It wasn't faith. It wasn't trust. You know, the Bible says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. That's not the cry that they were emanating. This was a cry of panic, of fear. Don't you care? God, where are you? Where are you in this trial? Don't you love me? I mean, God, are you sleeping in the back of the boat? Don't you see what's going on? 
And that's the way we respond sometimes in our difficulties. And Jesus says, hey, all I need to do is stand up, speak the word, peace, be still, and your storm will stop and everything will change. By this time tomorrow, you can go from a famine to a feast. You can go from a place of, 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 of debilitation and depression to a place of abundance, to a place of great joy. All I have to do is speak the word, and I will speak the word, and I will deliver you, and I will scatter your enemies, but I need you, my child, to trust me, to trust me, to depend upon me. So... Guys, we can say they didn't pass that test. So the next thing Jesus does is he takes them to what I call perfect faith. Perfect faith is training for reigning. Perfect faith is when we learn to walk in our authority. When we walk in victory, we're intentional where we become the problem solvers, where we take responsibility for our own spiritual growth to engage in our own battles rather than just thinking God's going to step in and save the day. This is all about you do and someone else is going to watch you. You see, the next time Jesus actually sends them into a boat Again, knowing that they're going to sail into the sea. And we read in verse 45 of, of Mark 6 that immediately after this, what was this? After he just fed the 5,000. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. <laughs> Jesus insisted the King James says he constrained them. He, the word in Greek is a very strong word. He forced them. So, guys, evidently there's a level of resistance and unwillingness here. Hey, Jesus, you're asking us to get into a boat? Hey, the last time that didn't go too well. I'm, I'm not really uh, too keen to do this again. Jesus, get in the boat. Jesus, we just checked the weather forecast. Things aren't looking good. I don't think it's the optimal time to go sailing. Jesus says, get in the boat. The disciples are reluctant to get into the boat, and Jesus is actually demanding them, he's pressuring them, is what the Greek says, to get into the boat. Jesus, we're not getting in the boat. Jesus is like, yes, you are. Get in the stinking boat. You see, Jesus knew all along what was going to happen. This time, they, the, the Lord does not join them on the journey. This time, the Bible says that his disciples get into the boat and they head across the lake, but, and he sent the people home. Jesus doesn't join them. He ascends to the hill to pray by himself. Verse 46, after telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Now, the interesting thing is while they are, while they are out there in the boat and Jesus is up in the hills praying, the Bible says that they had got to a place where they were about halfway across this lake. 
It was dark. It says that evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, verse 47. He was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now listen, this is supernatural. First of all, if you read the parallel account in John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 17, it actually says it was dark. I want to tell you, they didn't have night vision goggles back then. And they were halfway across the lake. The lake is 11 miles in diameter. Diameter, that's my Australian, sorry. And 11 miles in diameter. So they're halfway across. There's no way in the natural that Jesus could have seen them. So he saw them by faith. He saw them through faith. And Jesus walks out into the water. And the Bible says that he walked out on what was the fourth watch of the night. So when it says it was dark, it was probably about 9 p.m., most commentators believe. But Jesus doesn't walk out onto the water until the fourth watch of the night, which is in between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So for six hours, they're alone out there in the midst of the storm, and Jesus is watching through the Spirit. He sees what's going on, but he doesn't intervene. Why? Because they're being tested. They're being tested. See, now we're talking about perfect faith. Now we're talking about passing the test, getting the opportunity to write the tests again. But this time, the test is even more demanding and difficult than it was the first time. The first time, Jesus wants them, of course, to stand up, to take authority, to exercise dominion. But to have faith, to trust God that he's going to deliver them. But this time, Jesus is not even in the boat with them. So when Jesus shows up and he's walking on the water, what ends up taking place is they supposed it was a ghost. They cried out. They all saw him and were troubled. But immediately, Jesus talked with them and he said this, be of good cheer, it is I do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. Ego ami in Greek. Ego ami means I am. In Exodus 3.14, God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh or I am. Jesus refers to his divinity. Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. I am. I'm with you. God is with you. God is with you in the midst of your storm. So he goes up into the boat and the wind ceases. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure. And they marveled. Then it says this. Verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves. Because their heart was hardened. What does a loaf of bread have to do with faith? They hadn't understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. See, Jesus was pointing back to the previous miracle. He had just fed 5,000 men. That didn't include the women or the children, supernaturally. And it's very interesting. 
when the people, uh, the disciples approached Jesus and said, the people are hungry. Send them away, Lord. They need something to eat. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, you give them something to eat. In other words, it's time for you guys to take responsibility. It's time for you to recognize that you have the power, you have the authority to be able to deal with these situations. Will you rise up, my son and my daughter, and will you step into your place of authority, and will you begin to speak to your mountains, and will you begin to speak to these things and command them to leave because you believe, you trust in your heart? You see, many of us have come to the place where when we get in trouble, when we're going through a hard time, I recognize it's great and it's good to have brothers and sisters that we can ask to, you know, support us in prayer and join with us in prayer. But there comes a point, there comes a place in our own life where we have to do battle for ourselves. You know, the Bible says that David's mighty men forsook him and they spoke of stoning him. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. David was alone. He didn't have a support network. He didn't have anyone around him. But David encouraged or strengthened himself in the Lord his God when no one stood with him. David realized that he had the authority to be able to deal with this. Now, why is it that David recognized that? Because in the past, the Lord had given him victory. You know, when he came against Goliath and he was willing to confront Goliath and they said to him, who are you? How are you going to just, you're a youth, you're just a young lad. How are you going to take down this, this massive giant? And, and David referred to his previous faith victories. He said, your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. <laughs> if you could beat the bears and beat the lions, you can beat the giants. I don't know about the patriots, so no, no names mentioned. <laughs> But guys, do you understand what David went through was preparing him, was preparing him. You see, Jesus chided his disciples for their lack of faith. And he points back to the occasion when he had multiplied the loaves to feed the multitudes. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. In other words, they did not remember or call to mind the power which Jesus had shown in feeding the 5,000, and that having done that, he, had all, he also had power to save them from the storm. But not only that he had the power, but ultimately, guys, that they had the power. Do you understand? This is what I want to close with here. In Matthew 19, verse 26, it says, with men, this is impossible, but all things are possible with God. Do you believe that? Come on. Two people, three? Come on, shake. Wave your hand at me. Okay, if you believe it, okay. That's awesome, isn't it? But listen, it's one thing to believe that nothing is impossible for God. That's one thing. Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20, 
Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, faith that is growing, faith that is living and active and is constantly increasing. Yeah, you might have some setbacks and some failures and some disappointments. You know, you might take six steps forward and take three backwards at times, but you keep going, you keep growing. And Jesus says, if you have this faith as a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Then listen to this. And nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. Come on. I want you to say with me this morning, just say, nothing is impossible for God. And because I believe in this great God, nothing is impossible for me. Not in your own strength. I'm not talking about that. In his power and the authority that he's given you so that you can rise up against your storms. You see, some storms aren't meant to last. Most storms, they come and they go. And the point of the storm is we learn how to ride the storm. We learn how to go through the storm so that we learn how to overcome the storm. There are a point and there's a time even when we have to stand up and speak to the storm and command it to stop. But even if there seems a season where, where we're just there and we're not sure what's going on and, and it seems that God isn't, isn't looking upon our, our situation, we have to trust him. We have to trust him. He knows what's going on. He can step into the boat. He's just looking for a people that will trust him. But will you speak to the storm? Will you rise up? And will you speak to the storms in your life? Will you declare that the devil is a liar? That depression and discouragement doesn't have to be something you experience all your life. You can be free. You can know righteousness, peace, and joy. You can know what it means to live free from bondage or addiction. You can walk into you that place where you understand your purpose and your calling, your identity in life. You can live as an overcomer in Christ whom you've been created to be. You can walk in freedom. You can walk in health. You can walk in healing you can walk in it and we need to believe we need to believe we need to trust but we need to rise up and start speaking to some mountains i've said it many times and i'm sure you've heard it and it's not just a cliche but there are many of us who talk to god about how big our mountains are but god wants us to begin to speak to our mountain and tell him how great and how big our god is that's the truth let's stand together perfect faith Trust him in the storm. Let him bring you through it. He's with you. Come on, let's just worship him. Where's Ralph? He's over there, hogging the hell of a good dip for his big game ritual. Oh boy. Hey Ralph, can we get some of that too? Yeah, yeah, soon. Almost done. First the carrot, two taps and dip. Then the celery. Ah, yes, now the chips. All dipped in creamy, hell of a good dip. Mmm, delicious. Get the dip made with real milk and cream that wins every time. Not just good, hell of a good.